This morning, we're in the book of Matthew, if you want to turn there. And you guys should be excited today, because today we get to preach a text that everybody rolls right on past. A text that most of us don't stop, we don't look at, we don't try to understand what is there. We may not understand why it is important. And I know you're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 17, and you're going, wait a minute, he's going to preach on a genealogy. How in the world are you going to do anything on a genealogy that's going to be interesting and keep our attention? Well, I hope that I'll be able to do just that because I cannot tell you how important this section of Scripture is to the grand narrative of what God is doing in us, through us, and around us. From the very beginning of time, when Adam and Eve fell in their sin, God began, and, and he didn't, it's not that it began there, he began to reveal to us his eternal purposes and how he would save mankind from sin. From the garden when Adam and Eve fell, you will remember we have the first promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ when it said that there will be constant enmity between Satan and between the seed of this woman. And from that moment in Scripture, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all the way to the end of Revelation, everything points to the understanding of who is this one who will come. And we know that eventually when you get to the book of Genesis in chapter 12, God calls a man named Abraham. And not only is God going to save the entire world, but we find that God is going to do it through a specific people that we know as the Jews, that God is going to call to himself a people who were not a people. And if you remember, this genealogy is going to start in a miraculous way, and it's going to end in a miraculous way, because there is going to be a son who will be born, that it is a complete miracle with Abraham and Sarah. They were old, like dusty old, like old, like there ain't no way they're going to have a baby old, like it's impossible old, right? A hundred years old. That's one foot in the grave, right? And God says, I'm going to give you a child. And you know, Sarah laughed, right? And everybody's like, what? 25 years she waited for that promise, but at a hundred years old, God worked a miracle and a son was born and out of that son came the nation of Israel. And God said, not only do I want to bless you, Abraham, but I want to bless you so that I, through this seed, can bless the entire world. We know how it went for the children of Israel. They're a lot like us. They want to follow God. They say they're going to follow God. They intend to follow God, but God reveals his word and his purposes, and they begin to follow, and then they begin to fall. And they begin to follow, and they begin to fall. And God realizes that there is a big, big issue going on, and he begins to send judges to the people because they fall into sin and they fall under God's judgment. And then when they cry out for salvation and help, he would send the judges to them, and they would fight and overcome their enemies. But the problem is they'd go right back into sin. And he'd save them, they'd go right back into sin. And eventually they say to God, you know what we need? If we're going to be stable, if we're going to be secure, they were totally forgetting that the problems they were having were sin problems. They asked God for a king, and God says, you don't need a king, you have me. But they demanded a king. If you remember, the first king didn't go so well. That's what we've been studying in the first and second Samuel. The second king, King David, if you remember, at one point he looks at God and says, I want to build for you, God. How can I live in this huge palace, this beautiful palace, and yet you're out there in a tent, right? And God looks at him and says, listen, don't worry about me. God's not worried about it being in a tent, right? But he looks at David and he says, you've asked to build me a house. I'm going to build for you a house. And he makes to David another covenant. He made one with Abraham. 
He made one with David. He said that I'm going to give you a throne that will last forever. And they were already looking for a Messiah. They were already looking for a king. They were already looking for someone who would save them. And now they know that it's going to come through the line of David. And as they go through history, the Jews, they kept looking for a king. There are many Jews today that don't realize that the king has come and they're still looking for a king. This text is important. It bridges the Old Testament to the New Testament scripture. For hundreds of years, Hundreds of years now, God has been silent. For hundreds of years in the history between the Old and New Testament, we find that the Jews aren't a people. Even though they've been allowed to go back and build the temple, even though they've gone back to the land of Israel, the reality is they are a people who are subjugated to Rome, and they are still looking for a king. That's why the Bible begins with Matthew. It's not about uh, chronological order. The first four books of the New Testament, any of them, I guess, could have been chosen to be placed there. But the reason it was placed there was because it's the connection. Matthew, and really all four Gospels, let me, if you haven't realized this, all of them tell the story of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of how mankind can be saved. But all of these books, uh, the first four books of the New Testament, they look at the life of Jesus through a different lens. For Matthew, Matthew was a Jew, and Matthew is looking at Jesus Christ, and he knows that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the prophecies. He's the fulfillment of the expectation of Israel. He knows that they have been looking for a king, and he presents Jesus to the world through the lens of, this is the son of David, this is the king who is coming. The book of Mark has a different look at Jesus. Same stories. Many of the same stories are in both books. But the way the book is set up in the book of Mark, it's not about him being king. The book of Mark is showing Jesus as the suffering servant. The book begins and just goes and goes and goes. And it shows you and tells you about all the things that Jesus Christ did and how he came to suffer for mankind. He is the suffering servant in the book of Mark. In the book of Luke, he's the son of man. If you wonder what the lens of Luke is, it, the genealogy here goes from Abraham to Jesus. In the book of Luke in chapter 3, it goes from Adam to Jesus. Because Luke is telling the world that salvation isn't just for the Jews. Who is it for? It's for everybody. And so it's looking at Jesus through the lens of, this is the Son of Man who came to save the whole world from its sin. And then the book of John stands alone. And the reason the book of John stands alone, number one, there are a lot of different stories in there that aren't in the others, but the reality is it is, a important, it is an important book for one reason. It is the book that most clearly throughout the Scriptures sets forth the truth that this Jesus isn't just the Son of Man. He's not just the Son of David. He's not just coming to serve and, and to, to, to save the world, but understand this Jesus who left heaven and came to earth, who is He actually? He's God. He's God in the flesh. And it's where the divinity of Christ is most clearly seen in the book of John. And so today, as I read through this to you, I am going to read it. I'm a big believer. We read the Word of God, don't we? So y'all pray for me. It says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, The son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, that's the easy part. We're going to spend a lot of time there today. 
Verse 2 says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Odeb by Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Azah. Azah was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, I'm trying y'all, became the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihad, and Abihad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Iliad. Iliad was the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar was the father of Mathan, and Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Okay. Not even a hand for that? I mean, seriously. I mean, that... I'm going to make all of y'all come up here and read it yourself. Okay. What this is is an introduction to the king. That's what this is. Number one, I want you to see this morning that he is the fulfillment of prophecy of Israel. And he's also the fulfillment of Israel's expectation. You see, the king needs to be introduced. And not just introduced, but his family line needs to be introduced. Genealogies were important in this day And we look at this genealogy and we think, wow, what a bunch of names. When you consider, the reason I wanted to read it was because each of these names, if you study the Bible, they mean something very different. You've got people in there that seem like they were faithful servants of God. You've got others that it's like, whoa, how did they get in that list? And then there are names in there that you're like, I've never heard of them in my life. There was a man who ran an office. And it was a large office with a lot of employees, and he saw an employee he didn't know or recognize, so he walked up to him and said, what's your name? And the man said, my name is John. And the boss said, listen, we don't go by first names in this office. You ever have a boss like that? He says, we don't go by first names because I don't want there to be a familiarity that kind of whittles away at the authority that I have. So he said, I like to call people by their last name. You know, I want to call you Smith or Baker. The employee looks at him and says, so you want to be knowing me and calling me by my last name? He says, you got it. He said, in fact, I want you to refer to me as Mr. Robertson. And now that we've gotten that straight, he said, what's your last name? And the guy kind of sighed and went, well, my name is John Darling. He said, how about I call you John? (laughs) Folks, there are Darlings in this list. Abraham, David, 
Men like Josiah and all these others that we read about that we think, wow, God used these men and these men were faithful and these men followed God and they, they, they were men that, yeah, they were flawed, but they were so faithful. But then not only do we have these darlings, but we look at this list and it's a lot of disaster in here. And folks, I want you to realize today that that's good news for you and me. Because what that means is it is a reminder that this one who came, who did he come to save? Sinners. And who are sinners? Us, me, you, all of us, every man that breathed, woman that breathed on this earth outside of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, are in desperate need of salvation. And Jesus would come into this world and he's being introduced as king. The fulfillment of prophecy in Israel's expectation. This is probably one of the most unread verses in the New Testament. It's devotionally dry, we think. Some would say it's even boring. Others say, you know what, why don't we just skip over this and go somewhere else? I understand that, but genealogies were important in the life of the Jews. They were important records. Even to this day, if you were to go over to Arab countries, you would find that people, even in Bedouin societies where they're out there in camels just riding around in desolate places, if you were to walk up and ask them, share with me about your family, share your genealogy, they would be able to sit down with you and probably for an hour without stopping, they would be able to go back as far, I mean, so much further than you and I could, right? We have to go to Ancestry.com to get two or three back. And then like most of us, we're like, ooh, that's my family, i got to quit looking right here. <laughs> i got to stop looking. But they, they are able to go back through generations and generations because in those cultures, the censuses were based on these genealogies, especially back in the days of Israel. But more than that, land allotment, all these other issues had to do with these genealogical records. And so most of these people had it memorized, but the Jews, they had it recorded, and it was so important to them, they kept it in the temple. What is interesting is, this is one of the clearest, this and what's in Luke, genealogies to the throne of David, because you got to remember, after Jesus was crucified and was ascended back into heaven, rose and was ascended, I want you to remember, it wasn't many years later, in AD 70, that the temple was attacked, right? Along with the Jewish people. They were scattered throughout the world. The Romans took their temple and destroyed it. Everything that was in it, it is believed that all the genealogies were actually burned. And it's kind of interesting because the Messiah came and it's almost like there is, you, you, it would be very hard pressed for anybody to be able to track back now their lineage to King David, but we have Jesus's. These are important records in the life of Israel because when they came and they said, this is Jesus, the Messiah, that meant something to the people. They, that, that meant that they were saying that this one who had come would not just be a savior, but he would be the king that they had been waiting on. That's what it meant when they used the word Messiah. It's interesting in John chapter 7, verse 42 
when the people were wondering who Jesus was, it's actually this in another instance where people were questioning who Jesus was. One time it was the disciples who Jesus looked at and asked the question, who do you say that I am or who do people say that I am? And remember, there was all these answers, whether it was the son of David, whether it was uh, Elijah, whether it was you were a great prophet, all these answers were coming out. There was another time in John chapter 7 that the people of God were asking about Jesus. They were sitting there listening to him. They realized he was unique and completely different. And as they were talking, this is what John chapter 7 says. It says, does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family, from, Beth, from Bethlehem, the town where David lived. If you remember, David grew up where? Not in Bethlehem. Where did he grow up? Oh, y'all know your Bible trivia better than that. Nazareth. Right? But he wasn't born there, was he? Even though his family lived there, One of the things I want you to see about this genealogy, what it reminds us that is so important about God, God is always moving and working to accomplish his plans and purposes in his ways, in his timing from the beginning of history until today. I don't want you to think for a second that God has lost control or God doesn't know what he's doing or God's plans are being thwarted. This genealogy reminds us of one thing, that the Messiah, remember, he had to be born not in Nazareth. He had to be born where? In Bethlehem. These genealogies, these censuses that were taken, if you remember... It was the Romans who said to the Jewish people, you've got to go and we're going to do a census and you've got to go from where you were born. You've got to go back to your ancestral home. And that took Joseph and that took Mary out of Nazareth. And where did it take them? It took them to Bethlehem. Why? Because that's where the Messiah would be born. Isn't it amazing that God can take the census of a Roman governor to move two people 90 miles? To fulfill a prophecy. That's how in control our God is. And so they are looking and they are asking the question if he's the Messiah. See, for them, they're thinking he lives in Nazareth. They thought he was born in Nazareth. But they're going to find out no, no, no. He's much more than that. He is in the lineage of King David. And here is the evidence. And here is the proof to the Jews that he is who he said he was. Secondly, not only is he the fulfillment of prophecy in Israel's expectation, but secondly, he is the Messiah. Listen to what verse 1 says. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, when you put those two together, some translations say Jesus Christ. And we get confused, and, and it's understandable. If you didn't grow up in church, Jesus Christ seems like a first and last name, right? Because that's how we use names. If you put two names together, that's your name. And so Jesus is his first name, and many people think, well, Christ is his second name. But that's not true. We put titles up front in our language. So I'm Dr. So-and-so. I'm Dr. Wallace, or, or I'm Mr. Wallace. or You know what I mean? That's how we put our titles. But back in that day... Jesus was his name. That was his given name. And in the name of Jesus, there is a hint to to, to who he is. When this starts and says that this is the genealogy of Jesus, the ears went up because Jesus was a very important name in that time. It was the Greek name for what in the Old Testament was Yeshua. Now, Yeshua, you may have heard, that's the name Joshua in the Old Testament. 
I find it interesting that they take that name to be given to the name of the Messiah who would come. But it ought not shock us because in the Old Testament, there are these little gems, these little diamonds that if you dig and you understand and you back up from the text and you pay attention, you start to realize that God is giving you hints over and over and over to what he's going to do. Go back to the time of Moses. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Remember when Moses, the great lawgiver, was told, you can't go into the land, right? God had given a promise. God had said, I'm giving you this land. And Moses, seeking to bring the people into the land, we realize that like David, like Moses, like Abraham, none of them are the Messiah. When we think of Moses, we think of the great lawgiver. We know what the New Testament tells us. It says that the law can save who? Nobody. Folks, if you think you're going to go to heaven because you've obeyed God's laws, you're wrong. Because the Bible says that if a man breaks the law in one place, he has broken the entire law. That'd be like me standing before a judge saying, well, all I did today was commit murder, but I've never done anything else in my life. Listen, he's not going to condemn me for what I didn't do. What's he going to condemn me for? For what I did do. I have to stand alone on the choices that I make, and I have to pay the price for each every one of them. And God was making a point over in the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua when he told Moses, you know what, because you sinned, and it seems so insignificant, didn't it? He lost his cool, he lost his temper. And God looks at him and says, you can't go into the land of promise. And we want to defend Moses and be like, how could he not lose his temper? Look at these people we had to lead. They were hard-headed, they were stiff-necked, they were on his back all the time. Of course he got aggravated. And we want to defend Moses and tell God he's not being fair. But you know what God was doing all along? Through Moses, he was showing us the law can't get you there. You can't be good enough. And he turned away from Moses. And who did he turn to? He turned to Yeshua. He, he turned, do you see what he did? He turned to Joshua and look at what happened. Moses, you can't get us there. But Joshua can. You know what Joshua means, right? You know what Jesus means? Yahweh saves. The Lord is my salvation. And right there in the middle of Scripture, you almost miss the fact that God is saying, the law won't save you, but who can? Jesus can. Yeshua can. Joshua can. God can. Jesus. He's the Savior, but more than the Savior, the Bible says that He is Messiah. That's what is... Second thing in there, the, the Christ, that's what it means. And that's why some translations will say Jesus the Christ, so that you don't get confused that it's not another name, it's a title. And back then, the term Christ simply meant, I mean, the best translation is the Messiah. So when you ask the question, was Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, look at what he says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, what? The Messiah. When he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? What was Peter's answer? He said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
over and over in Scripture, when, when Christ is referred to, or Jesus is referred to as Christ, it is saying to the people that are listening, this is the King, this is the Messiah, this is the one that has been set apart to save the world from its sin. And I'm grateful that he came as a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior. Why? Because look at his family tree. We all have family trees, and some of them were like, whew, right? Christmas vacation sums it up good with Uncle Eddie. We all have an Uncle Eddie. There's three types of people hanging from the tree of Jesus' family. You know what they are? Those that, and let me make sure I say this, I want you to hear me. Those that seem faithful. And I'll explain why I say it that way. Then we have those in this list that are absolute failures. You look at their life and you're like, whoa. Whoa. And when I say that, I mean that they have lived in direct opposition to God. He planned and purposed things for their life, and they have gone against the will of God. They don't worship God. They don't serve God. They don't bring glory to God. And folks, let me tell you something. If you're not living a life that is bringing glory to God, it's the very reason you were created. There is no other reason. That is the reason that you would bring honor and glory, that you would look like him and talk like him and act like him and be his image bearer to the world. And a lot of us in this room would say, and listen, this is me. I don't put myself on that faithful list. I look at my life. I know the failures of my life. And there's another limb in there of people in here that the only way I know to say it is they're just forgotten. We want to think that you know what it's pastors or missionaries or whoever that are going to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. No, listen to me. God moved in and among people who didn't have a position that was seen. They may not have had a voice that was widely heard. But I want you to know that each of us are part of the body of Christ. If we are his children, do you understand that all of us, all of us, all of us are important to the kingdom of God and all of us serve a role? I will tell you this. The person that sits down there with those babies and begins to teach them and tell them and show them the love of God is as important, if not more important, than who stands behind that pulpit. Those of you that are leading D groups and no one sees and no one hears and no one knows that you're doing it but the six men or women that are there with you, let me tell you something. It was Jesus who said, go and make disciples. You're the ones who are sitting in homes who have set aside time and days to pour and invest a year of Mondays or Tuesdays in the life of some other person and you are fulfilling the Great Commission. Parents, when you are faithful to teach your children about Jesus Christ, how to be a husband, a father, a mother, a wife, a man of God, a woman of God, do you realize that just in that act alone, the impact from now until the end of history, the army that could be produced because of a godly heritage? And no one may never know your name. Let's start with 
the faithful. The reason I said seemingly faithful is I want you to know nobody on this earth is completely faithful except Jesus. The reason I don't like to use the word good there is because the Bible specifically says that there is no one righteous, no, not one. When Jesus was referred to as good teacher, he was the only person walking on the earth ever that could have been referred to as good. And he looked at the man who called him good and says, why do you call me good? Don't you know that no one is good except God? And you know what he was trying to do? He was trying to give that man a hint to who he was talking to. By the way, I am good because I am what? Because I am God. <laughs> I'm sinless. But not any others. When we look at this list, we can say that Abraham in so many ways was faithful. But didn't Abraham struggle with doubt and fear? The war that rages today between Arabs and Jews started with Ishmael and Isaac. The choice to shortcut God's way. David had Bathsheba and Uriah and all the mess that went on there with he and with his family. And while he was a man after God's own heart, we've been sharing. He wasn't a man who was by any means perfect. And we couldn't say that he was completely 100% faithful, except that he kept a short account with God. And when he felt convicted for his sin, what did he do? He confessed and he repented and he turned. We could go on and on and look at this list, and we're not going to find one picture of perfection, but what we do find is that some of these men and some of these women lived faithful before the Lord. When we look at some of these people, we have to recognize that out of these three types of people, these faithful, these ones that the world would try to term as good, they weren't 100% faithful, but yet the Bible records things about them that are important. Look at Josiah in 2 Kings. I really want you to turn there. 2 Kings, it's about the middle of the Old Testament. Look in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 25 with me, and listen to what it says about some of the people in this genealogy of Jesus. Chapter 23, verse 25, it says, Before him, meaning Josiah, there was no king like him. I mean, that's a pretty impressive statement. Before him, there was no king like him, and listen, who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any arise like him. Think about what that's saying there. What is the greatest commandment according to the scripture? And what does it say about Josiah? Love the Lord. That's exact. He loved the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. The greatest commandment, it says this man lived his life to make that statement true for him. And it was God that called him faithful, not me. That's what the word of God says. That's what was said of him. When you go to 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 11, you're going to see Asa and look at his life. What is said of him? It says that this king, it says Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father. He also put away the male cult prostitutes from the land. He removed all the idols which his fathers had made. He also removed Makah, his mother, from being queen mother because she made a horrid image as an Asherah, which was a false god. And Azza cut down that horrid image and burned it in the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Azza was wholly devoted to the Lord all of his days. I'll give you one more example that's in this lineage. 
You look and Jehoshaphat was mentioned in this lineage. If you turn to 2 Chronicles, that's going right out of Kings. 2 Chronicles chapter 17, look at what it says in verse 3. It says of Jehoshaphat, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father David's early days and did not seek the Baals, which were false gods. But he sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, and did not act as the rest of Israel did. And see, we could go on through this text, and you're going to see men that in many ways strike us as being faithful. But I want you to know that those men needed a Messiah as much as anybody else we're going to talk about. Folks, we are all desperately and horribly lost without Jesus' forgiveness and his sacrifice. But let's look at the failures. Those are the faithful. I want you to know and I want you to hear me. If you leave here and don't hear anything else, listen to this. God uses failures. Let me go ahead and tell you, it's the only people that really are around to use. If we go back far enough in all of our stories, we're going to find how desperately we struggled in our relationship with God. How far we had wandered from Him when He found us. And how most of us would look at that point in our life and say, you know what, how could God use somebody like me? But I want you to realize that that's exactly what he did. You got people in this text like Rahab. She was a prostitute when God found her. You say, well, didn't she find God? No, no, it never works that way. God's not hiding and we're seeking. We're the ones hiding from him and he is seeking. We're running from him. He is chasing us down And he comes across this woman who was a prostitute. And remember, the only thing that we know that she did in Scripture was she told a lie that saved soldiers. (laughs) Let that sink in. But she is recorded as being the mother of Boaz. A great, great, great grandmother to King David. Think about that for a second. That God spared her life, saved her. She became one of his people and she followed him the rest of her days. And here she is mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. Judah and Tamar, oh my goodness, you want to talk about a mess. Judah wasn't, I mean, because it's, it's interesting here that a line, and we're going to learn that the king that, this, that, that Jesus would be a king out of the line of David. And it's interesting because the line of David comes out of the line of Judah. I want you to think about it with me for the line of Judah. Judah wasn't chosen because he was good. Because remember Abra, or, or, uh, Isaac, no, J, uh, Israel, Jacob had 12 sons. It wasn't like, I mean, if he went with his favorite son, he'd have chosen, you know, Joseph or Benjamin. The first four, which Judah was one of them, we would have thought he'd have chose any of them. I mean, Levi was a hot mess. Reuben, Simeon, they were worse. And Judah, you want to talk about a mess? Judah was the son that one of his sons died and left a daughter, a widow. She didn't want to lose the name and the allotment of, and, and the, the things that came with being the wife of one of Judah's sons. And it looked like she was going to lose everything, so she devised a plan, Tamar. And listen to this. She literally 
hid herself, disguised herself in a way that Judah wouldn't recognize her, and then approaches him as if she's a prostitute. Now, a couple questions. Number one, what was Judah doing? He gave in. And I want you to know that together they had twins. Now, he thought he had just slept with a prostitute. He goes on his merry way, and because he didn't have anything, I guess, to pay her with, because he wasn't expecting that, he left things that would identify him later. Kind of like a driver's license today. And when she was obviously pregnant, and day, or, uh, Judah's looking at this ex-daughter-in-law of his who now is pregnant with twins, the embarrassment to the family, he looks at her, he starts to condemn her, and he goes to have her killed, and she pulls out his identification. And in front of everyone, he is exposed as the father to those two children. And it devastates him. And he looks at her and says, you are a better woman than me. You, I am the sinner. I mean, he, it just devastated him. And think about how many skeletons do we have that, like that in our closet that we think no one sees? If God snatched that door off the hinges and let everybody look in, could you imagine? Both of them mentioned, repented, mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. It's crazy. Bathsheba doesn't even say anything about her except she was the wife of Uriah. He's making the point. That even out of that mess, out of all the sons that could have been chosen, it was her son, even with all of her baggage, it was her son Solomon that would bring peace to Israel. And she would be part of this lineage. Folks, we don't have time to go through all the bad apples and loose nuts in Jesus' Christmas tree. Families are like fudge, I heard. Mostly sweet with a few nuts in it, all right? It's true. There was, there was actually a uh, family that commissioned a work to be done. Because if it was us and this was our family, you know how you try to gloss over like this relatives you don't talk about or readily discuss? Or like if you're going to introduce your family to somebody, you're hoping like maybe they're not going to be there. We all have that. And this family got a biographer, and they wanted to tell their history. It was a very prominent family. And so when they got the biographer to their house, you know, he's wanting to hear stories and go through the lineage, and they're trying to figure it all out. And they say, he said, who's this Uncle George? And he said, well, I don't know what to do about Uncle George. And he's like, why? He said, man, Uncle George, he said, he was the town drunk. In fact, he got so drunk one night, he murdered somebody and actually died in the electric chair. He said, I can handle that. He's like, do you sure you want to put him in? I mean... How are you going to put that nicely? He said, I've got it. And he came back to the family, and this is what he had written about Uncle George. He said, Uncle George occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. He was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a real shock. We don't see that in Scripture, do we? Just the unvarnished truth about lives that need to be saved, that need to be redeemed. And then we have the forgotten. 
Folks, you may be here today and feel like, man, I'm completely forgotten. I want you to know that's not true. You say, my life is insignificant. My sacrifice is insignificant. Folks, I want you to remember how many times in Scripture is that not true? Remember the widow and the widow's mite? Everybody else was coming in and dumping in change so everybody could hear how much they were offering to the Lord. And then this woman comes in and she literally can only throw in two mites, which isn't even a penny. One gave out of the abundance that they had. One gave everything. And you would say, well, what difference does two widow mites or widow, uh, widow's mites make? And you know what Jesus would say? You become to the example of the rest of the world. We don't know her name, but her legacy lives on, doesn't it? Over and over, that's exactly what we find in Scripture. God reminding us that you know what He sees. That nothing's lost on Him. Greatness, actually, Jesus would tell us, it's in being last. The last shall be what? The first. If you want to be greatest, you know what he said? Then be the servant of all. And there are names in here. Ram. It's a good truck, but don't know what he did. So many others that... Eliakim and just people that Iliad, I mean, who, it is lost on us who these people are, what contribution they could have possibly made, but I, I find it amazing that their names are still written in this genealogy. Folks, what you do may not make the headlines, but I want you to know that it's known in heaven. Don't despair. I love how the Scripture reminds us over and over that you are never out of His mind. Let that sink in a second. Psalm 139 tells us very plainly that you are never out of His mind. He says, how precious also are your thoughts to me. Listen to David as he says that. Out of all the things God's got going on in the world and all the people you think are more significant than you, I want you to listen. He says, how precious also are all your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Thirdly, he's the son of David. We see that he's the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of prophecy and the expectation of Israel, but he's also the son of David. It's interesting because in this text, in in Matthew chapter 1, we find that David is mentioned first, which is kind of odd because Abraham came before David. So it says, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But he's listed before Abraham for a very good reason, even though Abraham came first in history. In fact, David's name is going to be mentioned five times throughout this text. Why? Why? Because Matthew is establishing that first and foremost, Jesus Christ is the direct descendant of David. And therefore, he's qualified, he and he alone, to be 
the eternal king. You see, this is Yeshua, the one who will save the world, the Messiah, the one who was called out, the one who was sent out, the one who was set apart to be the Messiah, to save mankind. He establishes in the very beginning that this man is the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning David. It was back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that David was given this promise that your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. You say that's great while David's living, but what about after he lived? What about after Solomon? Solomon brought peace to Israel, but after that, the sons began to divide and they began to fight. And after that, the kingdom, it's like it went off the rails and it ended so poorly where Israel is exiled. Judah is exiled. Israel is completely leveled and destroyed. Many, many, many people died because of all the sins of idolatry, all the sexual sin that was going on in Israel's culture and in their families. And literally, it was a train wreck. And the people had to be wondering, when are we going to get out from under Assyria, Babylon? When are we going to get out from under the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans? You see how history, they just stayed a subjugated people. Even when they were given their land back, even when they were able to go back and build the temple, understand they were never free again and they didn't have a king on the throne. And they're looking and what are they waiting for? You see why this is important? 400 years, God hadn't even spoken. And they are longing for this king who will come and save them. I love the way Ezekiel puts it. In Ezekiel chapter 37, it simply says this. If I can get there. In Ezekiel 37, it, it simply tells us this. Then verse 24 following. It says, my servant David, listen to this, will be king over them. That's interesting because David's what? He's dead at this point. By the time of Ezekiel, he's been dead. Solomon's dead. Solomon's sons are dead. There's nothing left of a throne in Israel, yet the prophet stands before the children of Israel. And what does he say to them? Don't lose hope. Don't lose sight in all this judgment and all that's going on. I will save you. A king will come. And literally says, my servant David will be king over them. Now you know why Jesus takes up that label. He's the son of David. That's who they're looking for. He says he will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and they will keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on in the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, which is or in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, and they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever.
Matthew finishes with, he's the son of Abraham. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see, Abraham was important to the story and to the lineage because it was Abraham that was promised that through his bloodline would come forth someone who would bless the world. If you don't remember it, all you have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 12 and you will see the promise that was given to Abraham. In beginning in verse in chapter 12, also in chapter 17, also in chapter 28, over and over and over in chapter 15 as well. We literally see this promise given over and over. It says, Though, uh, now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. You notice none of this is Abraham. This is God saying, I will do this. And I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Flip over to Genesis chapter 17. This is a really crazy one. Most of you think that a kingship was first discussed with King David, this throne that was mentioned before about King David. It didn't begin with David. It began back with Abraham because look what it said in chapter 17. In verse 2 it says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer will you be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. Listen to this. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. If you go all the way over, one of the most impressive things is when you get to Genesis chapter 49. When you get to Genesis chapter 49, what you find is that Abraham is, I mean, that uh, we've got Abraham, we've got Isaac, we've got Jacob, who has now been named Israel, and Israel is looking over his 12 sons, and we said that out of the 12 sons, God chose Judah. Chapter 49 of Genesis Jacob would look at his sons and he would bless them and some of them got some curses that went along with it because of the things that they had done. And he looks at Judah, who you think is going to just be like cursed because, I mean, his life's a wreck. And he looks at Judah and as he describes him in that text, he comes back along and he says, but Judah, here's the thing, the scepter. Remember when the kings would sit on the throne with the staff and there was a scepter? He said, the scepter will not depart from your line. And all the way again, back in Genesis, what was God saying? That out of Abraham is going to come a king. And it went from Abraham. Now when you get to David, he narrows it down again and says, out of all the children, we go from Israel as a whole down to Judah as a specific. And then in the tribe of Judah, we've got the family of David who is going to be the one through whom the Messiah will come. I mean, it's crazy when you think about it what God did and how God blessed and how God accomplished all of his purposes through Abraham, through David. And you look at this text. Look at what God did to save you. 
you are not an afterthought to him. All of history hinges on this Messiah. So as the musicians are coming this morning, here's what I want you to think about, church. You've been introduced to the king. He's the Messiah. He's the savior of the world. The fulfillment of all of these prophecies and Israel's expectation. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. But you know what really matters for us in this moment today is the fact that Jesus Christ calls you to be part of his family. Let that sink in a second. Have you ever realized how far you are from God, how He owes you nothing, yet He came to this earth as the Messiah. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. The incarnation is what we celebrate at Christmas. But I want you to know that it doesn't end with a story of a baby in a manger. That is just the beginning of God's purpose by which this child will grow, live a sinless life, and will one day hang on a cross. And the cross was a criminal's death. And he didn't hang on that cross simply because he was sinful. He hung on that cross because you and I were sinful. Remember, nobody took Jesus' life. Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice. And the death that we deserved, he paid the price. And you say, well, how do I become part of God's family? How do I answer that invitation? Because I want you to know it doesn't matter where you are on which, which limb, faithful, or you think you've been faithful and religious, or whether you look at that limb and you say, well, man, I'm kind of like with the, the failure side of it. I look at my life, what a mess. Or you're sitting here today and you feel like you are completely forgotten by this world. I'm telling you, you're not from Jesus. And he saw you when he died there. And he knew that you needed him to save you. And that's exactly what he has provided. Salvation. And you say, what do I do? Confess your sins today. That means agree with God that you are a sinner. That your faithfulness really doesn't amount to anything. Because if you've broken the law once, you've broken it completely. And you haven't sinned once. You've sinned more than twice, more than three times. You can't count it. You can't remember it all. And you are in desperate need of salvation. So confess your sins. Ask Jesus to save you from your sins. Ask Him to change you. That's what it means to repent, is to change course and to go a new direction because you believe that Jesus died for you. He was buried and He rose again. And He's conquered death in the grave. And He can save you. You don't want to enter the grave. You don't want to go into death facing God's judgment without being forgiven. And the only way you can be forgiven is through Jesus. So you know what the Bible tells us? You know what they've introduced to us today? That if you're going to serve Jesus, if you're going to love Jesus, then you have to not only ask him to forgive you and not only believe that he came on this earth and he died in your place for your sins, but the Bible says that you also have to let him be Lord and king of your life. He won't settle for anything less. He is the king. 
And so the question becomes, not do you want Him just as Savior. He's already Savior. You realize that? Regardless of what you do today, He's already Savior. The question is, will you surrender and let Him be Lord? Father, we thank You for Your goodness and grace that calls us to salvation. Lord, we thank You for this King who would die for us. Not a King who would rule over us and lord over us and would look out for His own interests the way so many worldly kings do, but Lord, You showed us an example and this is a King that came and washed feet. This is a King that laid down His life for those that he loved. This is a king that came not to be served, but to serve. And Lord, what an example you've set for us. So Lord Jesus, if we're here today and we don't know you as Lord and Savior, give us a heart to repent and to seek your forgiveness and to cry out to you for salvation. Lord, give us faith to believe that Our sins can be forgiven because you died in our place and you took the punishment on the cross for our sins. Lord, help us to believe that you are king who has conquered the grave and you can save us from death and hell. And Lord, may we surrender to you today. And may your lordship be more than words. May it be seen in the way that we live and the way that we follow. In our words, in our actions, in our thoughts. Father, may you help us to show the world that we serve a king, and his name is Jesus. So, Lord, for those of us that are believers in Christ today, Lord, may we praise you during this song. May we thank you for being invited into this family. Lord, you have adopted us. When we placed our faith in you, you brought us in, and Lord, to think that we are now joint heirs with Christ, it is amazing. To know that we are not your enemies, but your children, it's amazing. And Father, may we not get over what Christmas really is all about. And may you help us to celebrate this truth that we've heard today. In Jesus' name, amen.